Good morning, good afternoon and good evening to all you athletics fans out there. We are the Backstreet Boys, I'm Girl, and we have a slightly different offering for you this week. Claire's got a fantastic interview with a global athletics superstar which will be coming up straight after this as Jody, Bayo and I are all in different places this week. But don't panic, we're back in a fortnight's time with our usual offering. Hi, I'm Sally Pearson and you're listening to the Backstreet Boys. One of the things that we always take note of, usually to have a big rant about. Um, <laughs> Do you know what, listen, we're, we're going to talk about this now, but we're going to save the rant until the actual event. I the think, actual awards, yeah. yeah. the actual awards. <laughs> so, so what's that then? So this week, the IWF came up with their nominations for Athletes of the Year. Historically, we've not agreed with a lot of their decisions, because basically well, it is... Historically, their decision has been one decision, is to give it to Usain Bolt, isn't it? That, yeah, that, that, that's no the problem. Doesn't matter what he's done that whole year, let's give it no. to Usain Bolt. Obviously, that's not good. Well, actually, I'm surprised he's not nominated. <laughs> I'm surprised he's not nominated. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even joking. Genuinely, I'm, I'm surprised they didn't find a way to shoehorn him in. Um, Hopefully, they've realised that there's no. we can't just promote Usain Bolt forevermore. We've got to actually start promoting some new, new talent. There's lots of it about. Um, and I think for the men and women this year, it's a very different list. But what has been your complaint in past years about how the whole thing is, is run? Well, two things. Number one, I've no idea how it's run. Like, they just announce a load of names and then announce someone who's the winner at the end. There is a voting process, but, I mean, it's it's all very political and it's all to do with PR. It's not to do with anything to do with who the actual best athlete in the world is. Um, but beyond that, the issue's been, let's pick the most photogenic um, athlete who mainly appeals to a Western audience, and let's make sure it's a track athlete. So, well, it's not just a track athlete; they're usually a sprinter as well. So, there's been, there's yeah. been a whole host of like sprinters. Um, throwers don't get a look in at all, do they? I think um, Valerie or Queen Valerie, as we should always um, call her, finally won one year, but I think it was wasn't even one of our best years. I think they just realised that they came into it; they had to give it. There'd been such a sort of so many people complaining otherwise. Um, that they kind of had to give it to her one year. And the year she won, she didn't necessarily deserve to win, did she? Not that I'm ever complaining when, when Valerie was <laughs> anything at all. Well, of course. Uh, but, like, just for example, let's, let's have a look at past winners. And this goes back to 1988. It was first um, brought out, Cole Lewis yeah. and Florence Griffiths. I don't think anyone can argue with Florence Griffiths that year. Um, yeah. And off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you who the men's best men's athlete was, but I'm sure Cole Lewis was right up there. Um, yeah. Roger Kingdom and Anna, Anna Kiro. Steve Backley and Merlin Nossi, Cole Lewis again and Katrin Crabber, Kevin Young and Heidi H- Heike Henkel, etc, etc, etc. So on the men's side, Steve Backley as a field eventer and as a thrower won in 1990. Yeah. You then have when, to when, wait. When, when was the next thrower that won? Well, that's what I'm looking for. Oh. So 1990. It's going to be a long time. <laughs> it's taken me a while. So Jan Zalesny won in 2000. But you can't, I mean, Jan Zalesny, it's Jan Zalesny. Uh, after that's not, no, another male thrower has never won. No. And so just yeah. even looking, if we go beyond throwing and just look at field eventers, and we won't count Carlos as a field eventer because he didn't win no, it for the long jump. Um, he won in 91 when he lost the long jump. So let's see if we can find Jonathan Edwards in 95. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There's a big long silence. Renault Le Villani in 2014. Yeah. But, I mean, and then the, on the winning side, let's have a look. Um, Heike Henkel in 92 is a field eventer. Jackie Joyner in 94. Now, the story is that Sally Gunnell actually won yeah. in 94, but Primo Nebbiolo, who was head of the IWF at the time, said he didn't want her winning. Didn't and he call her like a, a housewife or something? Something like that, yeah. 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 
Um, she'd won the year before. <laughs> so, um, so who, where have we got another? Stacey de Grilla in 2001, and then Hester Clotter in 2003, Yelena Simbaeva a few times. Oh, but this is it. They did Yelena lots of times. The overall thing is, I think you're right, it's they, they tend to go for photogenic over um, actual... Um, um, quality over ability, you know. Um, and the people who win, there's not actual complaint about the person, person who wins. They've always had great years, but there's always someone else who, you know, would have made more sense. My issue with um, um, Usain winning, I think he won seven of the last eight or something absolutely ridiculous, is that is no way to promote a sport because what you're basically saying is he is the one person who won who's he won last year, yeah, and I don't remember yeah. what he did last year. How he, yeah, yeah, he, he obviously did well, but like he wasn't the greatest athlete of the year. Um, yeah. The they, there's been many times when there's been someone really, really great, a fantastic year, two or three people even, and they're giving it to Usain Bolt because they think that's what the press wanted. But to me, that's not a story. The story would be, oh my God, there's a better athlete than Usain Bolt, maybe one yeah. that the press hasn't heard of. You know, there's a story. That's something to promote the sport with. So giving it to the same person year after year after year, just because he is the face of the, the sport, kind of undermines the whole thing. And I think over the years, it's become a bit of a joke to athletics fans, hasn't it? I'm sure maybe it works for their purposes. Let's talk about this year's nominations because we can. Yeah, okay. it will come up then. The men's side, the nominations are Mutaz Ezebarshim had a great year, undefeated, 11 competitions. Pavel Vajdek, he won 15 of 16 competitions. Mo Farah. Sam Kendricks was undefeated at 17 competitions. Wow. Elijah Manongoy, who I just feel is just someone to fill the numbers. I don't know what he's doing there. Totally, yeah. Um, Luva Manyonga, undefeated yeah. in nine competitions. Omar McLeod. Christian Taylor. Um, Wade Van Niekerk and Johannes Vetter. I think they've all had, there's some people that have had really good seasons, but yeah. no one stands out for me. I mean, I think I said this last week when we were talking about the European Athlete of the Year. Johannes Vetter is actually my Athlete of the Year. Um, I, I kind of have to agree. I think there's other people, obviously, as much stronger competition here in the world, um, the world competition than just the European competition, but I still think I would go for him for the very reason you're about to explain now. Well, he's just thrown. 94 metres 44 to move second on the world all-time list and it's not like some some um, world lists are very close at the top but the men's javelin um, Jan Lesney is so far out there ahead of everybody else and he's kind of bridged the gap between the people who are throwing 92 93 metres and Jan Lesney who's who's thrown like 98 or whatever it is so he's become the second best ever but to do that he's had to be Thomas Roller, who earlier in the year had gone second all time. Um, the javelin this year was insane. The same way that the high jump was a couple of years ago, the same way the triple jump triple was. Jump, yeah. The, the, the people are losing, but they're losing with astronomical performances. That, that always counts for more than someone who can win all year and not really have any competition, doesn't it? So I, I kind of agree with you. But who, who else is in the running? Who else do you think like... I mean, Lou Vermanyonga is very much in the running. He was very much in the running. That, that's really interesting because if, if you had asked me to come up with the, the best ones of the year, I probably wouldn't have thought of him. But when you say it, he didn't, didn't lose and he's jumped some really, really um, long jumps as well, which, which again put the event... Um, to some kind of respectability, because it has been the doldrums for yeah, a few years. It, my only, my only... He was jumping 8.50, did he jump 8.63 once? Um, and in the, in, the, in the history of that, that's not a big jump. It's no, bigger than it's, it's, it's normal years, isn't it? No, it, but it that's what I'm saying. I'm putting it in some context against, um, against Johannes Vetter. So, yes, he had a great yeah. year in the context of a long jump at the moment, but it's not up there. It, well, I would say Sam Kendricks, and I think yes, mostly I Sam Kendricks because... Undefeated in 17 competitions. I, know. I mean, that's crazy. And it's not 17 competitions in the pole vault as well, you know? 
I think the competition is very high, but he had one one jump at six metres. And he has won a lot of competitions. But when you're winning at 580, 585, it's just not the same. I personally, and it's just my preference, I would prefer someone who comes second with a 90-metre throw than winning with 580. I think it's... Um, so, for me, um, Johannes Vettis is definitely the world number one. A lot of people are going to absolutely disagree with that. I know track and field knees, um, it's all... We loss is their, their first thing. And, yeah. um, um, but for me... If you lose throwing magnificent throws or performing at a magnificent level, that has to count for something. When you're comp- when you're um, comparing across events, um, because all events aren't equal every year. Hi, my name is Tim Collins, and you are listening to the Backstreet Boys. Such a professional. Whatever, man. <laughs> if everyone's the women, for me, it's much more interesting. Oh, yeah, it's much stronger as well, isn't it? It's like um, so we've got Alma Zayana, Maria Lissitzkina, Helena Beery in the five um, k. Um, Sally Pearson, our mate Sally, um, Sandra Perkovich, who I think is a dark horse there, um, Brittany Reese in the long jump, bit of an odd one, um, Casta Semenya, um, Katarina Stefanidi. Um, now she um, was undefeated again in the pole vault, so that's interesting too. Um, pole vault was undefeated. Um, Nafisati Tiam, of course, in the um, heptathlon, and Anita Vilavashik, who I think we can say is who we've been talking about when we were saying earlier about not giving the award to people who deserve it. Um, um, she didn't win last year, and I think we won't get into that, but like the fact that she didn't win last year is an absolute travesty. So take me through your thoughts on these. Okay, so there's a few people I can dismiss automatically. <laughs> yes, there are. <laughs> Almaz Ayana ran one race all year. Well, she ran two because she did the five times well. Oh, she did the five times well. I think, but, yeah, but yeah, I think I mean, that's all she ran, isn't it? I don't remember seeing her yeah. before or after, so yeah. yeah not interested. Thank you. Love her performance of the year possibly like comeback of the year whatever but it's not she's not the world athlete of the year yeah and i think it's what we were saying again about the europeans isn't it it's like head over heart i mean if you're talking um athlete of the year who like raised their game or who like did it when it mattered then completely slatters in the conversation but i think here you need to take into account um you know the boring statty stuff as well don't you at the championships where she obviously is um that's where she comes into her own she won and it was brilliant but as an over as an overall season it's not it's not the best in in the world this year so yeah. i'm going to take her out i'm taking now, what, what's britney reese doing in there i've absolutely literally no idea it's so weird we've just had a, a um obviously we've just done the um um interview with um tiana um, yeah. In my head, Tiana actually won at the world, so, oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> so I, go, I don't remember Brittany even winning. I think it maybe was her only win of the year or something. She don't, I, don't remember I, having a good she, year at all this she year. Doesn't so. need to be in there at all. Everyone else absolutely is yeah. worth consideration. It's interesting that Anita, I think, Larachek, who had a fantastic year, world lead, um, second best mark ever, um, obviously undefeated, because she's had so many great years in the past, this one just doesn't seem to stack up, doesn't it? Which is totally unfair. Well, she's but, um, breaking the world record, and this yeah, year, exactly. she's just, yeah. just, just through the second best of all time. So, um, <laughs> so unfortunately, you're right, she, there's not been any kind of fireworks with her this year, except every single competition. But she yeah. set such a high standard previously, that it doesn't feel as exciting this year. Lassit Skaney, who um, I hadn't realised she was untended in 24 competitions, which is crazy. You know what, but, I, but, but I think what they've done here, and this is why the same for the pole, but why it seems like so many, is because they've done the competition as well, yeah. which you can't yeah. in all events. No, you can't in all events. Um, but, I mean, not only... You know, but still, there's still 24 wins. Isn't yeah. That's actually more, yeah. more, more chances to lose. But, I mean, her competition, again, was so thin... Uh, and, until the World Championships. Yeah, oh, no, absolutely. And that, 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 that particular competition was great. But, like, overall, I mean, did yeah. anyone else even go up at 
to meet someone who uh, just did the world, world championship. Yeah, just at the world champs. Uh, I think at that point, no one had. I don't think they did. No, I don't think so. No. Um, so I mean, she should be right, right up there, but I'm just not sure the competition. Um, I agree. Means she's in with a shout. Um, now, last week I got my facts on, didn't I? About um, probably Matthew TM. That was spectacular, obviously. But the I didn't think the, the performance at the World Championships was that spectacular. And and the problem is with when you are a multi eventer and you've only compete two or three times a year, you really have to totally knock it out the ballpark to be considered against people who've competed twenty two times in a year. Totally get that. This is interesting because once we're talking about mostly European, the same as last time. Caster's in there, isn't she? That's that's the only difference I think from the people are actually considering. I I think the two the two non Europeans totally need considering. Helena Beery. I think it's got she's got quite a, kind of overlooked because she does different events. Um, yeah. But her five thousand this year was so strong, and multiple times she ran super fast, as she did in the three thousand, undefeated in the five thousand, um, and her her performance at the World Championships was incredible. The way she literally killed Ayama in the fast first in the last lap, very very special. Um, but my athlete of the year is Castor Semenya, unbeaten as always. Um, Super fast time this year with 155.16. Um, now, I know we all think she could probably run faster, but, she, but that's not the point. No, it's um, not the point. Well, 155.16 is an incredibly fast time. And also, don't forget, on top of that, she won and won a bronze medal in the 1500. Stephanie is still in the mix, I suppose. But I feel like her, the same way I do about Sam Kendricks. Um, yeah. It hasn't been a vintage year for, for the um, pole vault. The event. And the, she has jumped 491. It's a high, but it's not spectacularly high. Yeah. So uh, she's out of my consideration. Right, can we just talk Sandy P for a moment? Oh, I think shit. she's got totally overlooked. <laughs> well, not just totally overlooked. I've just totally overlooked her. Um, I mean, but I'm just saying, I think all year she's been totally overlooked. I haven't heard much people talking about her at all. She had seven throws over 70 metres. She was through 71.49, which is the best throw since 1992. Do you know what? I, I, talking of being overlooked, I literally just overlooked her. Yeah. Um, you're absolutely right. She's had a spectacular season, even by her own standards. She looks incredible this year. She does I mean, look she absolutely so incredible, strong. yeah. She does. Um, and she's throwing better than ever. If you had seven throws over 70 metres and are undefeated, then um, sorry, Caster. Um, <laughs> Sandy P is my new um, World Athlete of the Year. Well, I think Sandy, Castor, and Nafi are my top three. We'll, we'll leave it up to the IWF. In there. I can do with her, please. Thank you very much. We will, we will let the IWF um, look into that and just see what they come up with, and then we will have a rant afterwards, yeah? Absolutely. But yeah. if you're listening, maybe you'd like to get in touch and let us know who your um, athletes of the year are. Um, if you go to the IWF website, you can see all of the nominees and let us know who your choices are, why and what you think of the whole process. Next up, we have a very special interview with Fiona Bartoletta, which Claire's done. Um, so over to you, Claire. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much, Furlong's fascinating stuff as ever. I'm Team Semenya and Team Mionga, but who knows how the public vote will go, who knows what will go on at the IAAF and what they decide to be promoting this year through that decision. But the point is, it won't beat Usain Bolt, and as much as I love him, that is absolutely the way that athletics needs to go. So, yes, interesting nominees, and I'm looking forward to discussing it when I next see you. As you said, we've got a fantastic interview coming up, and I, as a devoted Desert Island Discs fan, thought that I would record a Desert Island-esque spiel to introduce this guest, just in case somehow she's flown underneath your radar. I first saw Tiana Barceletta, then Madison, playing her part in breaking a 27-year-old world record at the London Olympics. 
her explosive and technically astute lead-off leg set up Alison Felix, and then, if memory serves, Bianca Knight and Carmelita Jetta perfectly, as the quartet hacked over half a second from the previous 4x100 best. She already had a world championship gold in the cabinet from the long jump in 2005, to which she added another in 2015 ahead of her maiden Olympic title in Rio. Bartoletta is a truly rare breed, a world-class competitor in two disciplines. To go with her world record, she's a long jump best of 7.17 and has covered 100 metres in 10.78 seconds, making her the joint 14th fastest of all time in the sport's blue riband event. Her calibre and fearsome ability to thrive upon athletics' greatest stages is indisputable, but there is so much more to Bartoletta than her competitive prowess. Her blog tackles issues from NFL players kneeling during the anthem to reasons behind her tears upon the podium at this summer's World Championships, while receiving her bronze behind compatriot Brittany Reese and authorised neutral athlete Daria Kloshina, Bartoletta was visibly moved and later explained that she'd, earlier this year, taken the enormously brave decision to flee her home, which, in her own words, has become a place of fear or fighting, threats and abuse. With her extraordinary story, performances and eloquence, she's the perfect guest for our first Longer Athlete feature. So, without further ado, here I am, fresh from reading her e-book, Why You're Not a Track Star, and talking to the brilliant Tiana Bartoletta. 7.07 is the lead so far. What's Bartoletta got in the last round? Oh, has she done it? Oh, it has! 7.14! Once again, champion of the world, 10 years apart, quite a unique feat that, isn't it? I've literally just got back from the gym and just had some lunch. And I was going to skip lunch because I was like, oh, I don't know if I've got time before I talk to Tiana. And then I thought, no, got to have some food because this morning I downloaded your e-book. <laughs> yeah. And I gave it a read and it was a great read. And it completely reminded me that food is fuel and you've got to look after your body. So... I've had a couple of eggs and some leafy greens, and I do feel a lot better for it. So it's already taught me something. Well done. Well done. Let's <laughs> <laughs> start with what's not the easiest of questions. Mm-hmm. I'm putting you on the spot a bit here. But I was wondering, which in your entire life and career has been your single best jump? The one that's felt the best, the one that's meant the most? Uh, the jump that has meant the most. Hmm. I honestly think it's this latest one uh, at World Championships in London. I think the final jump that I took, the 697 jump that secured me the bronze medal, that was my biggest jump, mostly because I was struggling through the previous five rounds to kind of find my place on the board. And I took note of myself almost as an observer that I hadn't panicked and I wasn't getting tense, that I was just trying to chip away at the things I was struggling with and that uh, I stayed in the competition and was able to execute my best jump in the sixth round when I needed it. And that just filled me with so much pride because that's what you train for. And to be able to do that, basically under duress for so many different reasons. I was I was really, really proud of that moment and that jump and myself. And did you realise the second you hit the board that you'd found your best jump? Yes, I realised that I found my best jump of the day. I knew that it wasn't the best jump of the competition, but all I wanted at that point was to just keep fighting and to do that, to have my best jump of the day on that last jump. And 
I was prepared to be okay with wherever that jump landed me in the placing because I had brought the best out of myself when I needed to. You've spoken quite a lot since, both on social media and in interviews, about how that medal from London, your bronze, means the most to you, despite it perhaps not being top of the podium, which I think, given the context of that six-round jump, is completely understandable. I've also read that when you fled your home this year, you left your medals behind, and I was wondering whether or not you'd have them back since. I left them behind in as much as I stored them in a storage facility when I left, because I knew I couldn't travel around the world with with uh, three gold medals and two world championship medals and two Diamond League trophies going from hotel to hotel, couch <laughs> to couch. So they were they were in my possession, but uh, not with me. They were in my storage facility. I have since gotten them back, so I have them all with me. I'm delighted. I'm not <laughs> going to ask you too much about your marriage today because I know you've spoken eloquently about that elsewhere and I'd love to focus on your jumping um, but I just mm-hmm. wanted to kind of quickly express how I'm so I'm in such admiration of your courage in that really tough situation I'm thrilled that you're safe you're happy you're moving forward it's really wonderful thank you you set your personal best at the time of 6.89 on reach your first world final in 2005 you then set a PB in the 2012 final in the 100 meters You jumped even further than you've ever done before in 2015 to win your second world title, and then you set another PB to win your first individual gold. How on earth do you set personal best so consistently when it matters the most? I think um, part of it is uh, my personal story, Uh, and a lot of people didn't know about it before now, but I think the, the strength and the mental toughness that I have to have just to like get through everyday life at that point really allows me to approach track and field with a this is nothing kind of attitude so I don't feel pressure in the way maybe other athletes feel because what is the pressure of being top three at a meet compared to the pressure of not knowing what personality you're going to get when you open your front door at home. It's not, for me, it's it's not equal, and I can handle that track and field stuff much easier. Also, it helps to really be a nerd like I am because <laughs> uh, physics is really, yeah, physics is really a crutch for me because I always say physics doesn't care about my age, physics doesn't care how I feel, All physics wants me to do is execute, and then I get back what I put out, and that's it. It takes the emotion out of it. It takes all the variables out of it. Like, if I do X, Y, and Z, I will get a certain result, and that's pretty much how I go into these competitions. As an executioner who needs to execute a checklist, nothing more and nothing less, and that's how I'm able to handle the pressure and uh, the expectations for the most part. Speaking of the science behind everything, you've mentioned how what you put in is related to what you get out, and that's completely understandable. I'm really interested in the technicalities of someone who is both a runner and a jumper. Do you think it would benefit a lot of your competitors on the field if they were to try their hand at sprinting and vice versa? Should runners jump and jumpers... Ooh, should runners jump and jumpers run? There we go. (laughs) 
I believe that uh, both sprinters and jumpers do very, very similar workouts already. So sprinters do jump. They do plyometrics. They do the standing long jumps because that is a, that's directly correlated to the block start and the explosiveness you need at the start. Jumpers sprint because the runway is arguably the most important segment of a jump. And so there is a lot of um, um, similarity between the two events. I think it comes down to what you believe you're capable of doing or mastering as a deciding factor between whether you do one or both. As a result of doing both of those things for such a high level, you are a truly world-class runner and jumper. And I was having a think about what perhaps your ideal pentathlon would be because so many people talk on Twitter about, oh, what would happen if you had a go at some multi-eventing? And I wondered whether or not perhaps training with Daphne Shippers has inspired you in that respect. So looking at your history, you were a seriously good triple jumper. You're also an international bobsledder and used to play basketball at high school. So <laughs> maybe would that be your best pentathlon? If such an event existed? Um... Honestly, I think so. I think you're right, but it really wouldn't matter. I love competition so much. I feel like I would give anybody a run for their money in any sport, whether I knew how to do it or not, just because I'm crazy that way. I just, I'm competitive, and I will figure out how to be competitive even in events that I'm not used to, just like the bobsled. I had no experience, no idea. The learning curve was steep. But I'm so competitive that I was watching video and trying to figure out how to be um, the most powerful off the block and how I can get what position my body should be in so I could have the right shin angles and all of these things to try to be the best at that. So, yeah, I have that crazy factor. It really wouldn't <laughs> matter what sport you put me in. I would try to dominate it. <laughs> Love that. That's such infectious enthusiasm. And having seen you compete and seen what a fearsome competitor you are yeah I've no doubt we could chuck you in any sort of situation you know what you'd be a great gladiator if you ever went on that show yes yes fantastic I actually watched the movie gladiator um before my competitions just because it's like um, a reminder of that sort of fearlessness slash reckless abandon you need to have in these competitions rather than pump music a sort of pump mentality that you can take away definitely something I can see reflected in your performances if we were to talk about a more conventional pentathlon is that something you've considered uh no <laughs> I know everyone would love to see you try I know um it's some okay so I've thought about the heptathlon and I always get a little bit hung up at the hurdles it's not that I can't hurdle I have way back in high school attempted it one time not for a competition but in practice and it's not that I can't do it I just can't wrap my mind around doing it fast I mean that just seems <laughs> crazy to me <laughs> to go over all those barriers at full speed I cannot quite um, rationalize that for myself that in the 800 kind of gives me pause because I'm like that is about 700 more meters than I'm willing to run <laughs> Yeah, it would be a very different <laughs> string to your bow. It would mean a complete change in training. And yeah. I think you've achieved enough as it is over two events, so maybe let other people have a stab at the other disciplines. <laughs> I've got a question here from Jodie, one of my other fantastic podcast hosts. Mm -hmm. He was wondering, 
where you were between 2006 and 2012 with regards to major champs? I was busy perfecting the art of mediocrity. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. So basically what happened was I was actually in Osaka for 2007 World Championships. I had a bye. I was the reigning world champion from 2005. But I had had a knee surgery prior to that. And so even though I recovered well physically, I didn't recover from that whole ordeal mentally at all um, because that injury happened during a long jump. So I was really apprehensive and anxious when it came to jumping again. I lost uh, a sponsor because I wasn't performing. There were were a lot of things going on. And so that was the beginning of a slide into mediocrity, like I, I just mentioned. So 2007, I did not defend my title. I barely made the final, definitely didn't make the podium. 2008, I came back and tried to make the Olympic team and did not. In 2009, I switched coaches again. I ran. I got my first glimpse that I could run well. I ran 11.05, but wasn't able to repeat it. So wasn't sure if that was a fluke or that was something I should explore. 2010, um, same thing. Switched coaches again, just trying to find myself, trying to find my way. But went back to school thinking track and field was going to be um, over, but as long as I still had that former world champion title, I was still able to get enough meets to generate enough money to pay for tuition. So I was in school for molecular and microbiology, taking a full course load, and basically trying to transition my way out of the sport. And 2011, same thing, still in school. And then 2012, uh, that's when I um was being coached by Raina Ryder. Originally I wanted to train with him because I thought if he can make me even just a little bit better, I can make a little more money and I can start saving for grad school or medical school. Literally had no plans to be an Olympian or still be competing because I didn't think that was in the cards for me. So I was really just trying to finance school. So that's where I was between 2007 and 2012. It doesn't come much more oxymoronic than hearing your name and perfecting the art of mediocrity. (laughs) That's really fascinating and answers that question really well and incredible that you've you managed to sort of stick stay in touch with the sport for so long and then you suddenly obviously hit that enormous turning point and since then you've really been a dominant force both on the track and on the field. Did you have a moment where you really considered walking away? Yeah, I mean, in my brain, I had walked away, but it was impractical to not use it to make money because I was still able to, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So I was not all in to the sport, but for as, as long as meet directors still were inviting me to competitions and I was still making like several thousand euro by the end of the season, that's still more money than I could have made in the U.S. with a regular job. I was still making enough money to be able to rationalize hanging around the sport. However, I was not of the mindset that 
I was going to be number one in the world again or anything like that. I was literally using track and field to finance a totally different endeavor. I think one of the reasons that athletics attracts people as fiercely competitive as you are and people who have got such mental strength is that it is one of the most cutthroat sports in the world. Every nation has athletes that are all competing to be at the very pinnacle of their sport. Mm -hmm. And, you know, training is really difficult. You're putting your body under an enormous amount of duress and injuries happen and sponsorship is difficult to get. I could talk for hours about what a tough sport it is. But I think, I feel, in a way, you athletes wouldn't have it any other way. Does that sound about right? You know what? I think you're absolutely right because there's a certain... Track and field, like you said, attracts a certain kind of personality, and I think we're in it for as long as we're in it because we have a personality that's compatible with the cutthroat nature of the sport. The sponsorship sponsorship side and the reductions that come when you don't perform, they are stressful, but they make you perform, if you know what I mean. It's, you're like, I need to be on it. And it's such a self-driven sport. It's an individual sport. So how else do you get out of your bed in the morning when no one is telling you to wake up at 5.30 and go knock your first workout out by 6 a.m., start your workout by 6 a.m.? There is nothing driving you to do that other than the fact that you know, one, somebody might be outworking you somewhere else in the world, two, your sponsor is going to make you pay dearly if you don't get your butt out of bed and train. And three, you have a training group that is dependent on you bringing your A game every day to make them better so that they, in return, can make you a better athlete. So I think you're right. I prefer to have it this way because it brings out the little monster in me in competition. There are definitely elements of the sport, though, that I'm sure you would like to change. The lack of effectiveness in our doping practices, trials, structures. I think some people have very mixed feelings about the way that international, well, national teams are selected in the U.S. and in other countries. If I could give you one wish or a magic wand or a genie lamp or anything along those lines, Tiana, and you could instigate one change within the world of athletics, what would you pick? Mm, that is so <laughs> hard. I, I think I have to choose choose our trials situation but at the same time I absolutely love it I love it and hate it so the reason I love it is because it's straightforward like unlike our relay process this is like you need to be ready on this date to perform and you need to be top three we all pretty much know what that date is months and months before we have to be ready so we can plan accordingly and I'm an expert planner so I do really well with these sorts of things which is why like during Olympic years I'm able to both sprint and jump at super elite levels because I this has worked out me and my coach have worked out this calendar and we have that date and we're just like tunnel vision on these dates and we know we need to perform here and I really love that about the trial system. At the same time, the trial system also works against a lot of professional athletes um, because we have superior collegiate athletes as well. And so what happens is the collegiate athletes are um, still in their peak season coming from their NCAA championships. And so they, are, they can easily make our team 
However, we all know that most of them are going to be exhausted two or three months later when the actual championship comes around. And so it gets frustrating that the collegiate who rightfully earned their spot on that team takes a spot away from a professional athlete who is more likely to be ready for competition in August than that collegiate athlete. And that's where it's kind of like a love-hate thing. Yeah, absolutely. They have such a grueling competition calendar, don't they, the NCAAs? And Mm -hmm. in the same way that I know that in uh, South Africa, selection is really, really early in the season because of the way, I think it's to do with the way their climate works. They They want them to be having their national trials towards the top of the season but that means that they've peaked by that point and then it's just pretty much downhill down towards the champs and obviously you get your Van Niekerks and your Semenyas who are championship formers and they're fine with that but I think a lot of national trial systems I mean the British one is full of holes there's a lot to be done there so okay you wouldn't wave your magic wand and change US trials what would you pick oh I think the next thing I would change is maybe the Diamond League format okay because i don't know how the heck it works anymore (laughs) um (laughs) if it helps i don't either and i absolutely love the thing yeah i love it too i just want to know what the rules are (laughs) so i know how to win i mean i understood it uh this year i got that it was a new format and i understood but i needed like i told you i'm i'm like uh hardcore planner so (laughs) I wasn't all that aware of the new format um, before the season started and I honestly feel like had I been aware of the new format I would have had that meeting with my coach and kind of changed focus Um, because this year I won more Diamond Leagues and jumped really well in the Diamond Leagues but should have put more emphasis on being ready for the final because all of those points that I accrued didn't matter at all and in a way I knew that but you really know that when you get to the final and lose and (laughs) and like you feel like your whole entire season of consistency was for nothing Uh, I don't know how I would change it but I do think that you should be rewarded for consistency during the season and get rewarded for winning the the big you know the big final at the end of the season I think I think we need to find a way to balance both if that makes sense it definitely does and I know Jody and Bayo will <clears throat> listen to this interview and just love that you picked the Diamond League because it's one of their pet peeves <laughs> the fact that the structure is so incredibly complicated and that the weightings keep changing and the qualification is altering all the time I think yeah there needs to be a much simpler structure. You touched on U.S. trials, which brings me really nicely into sort of the next big topic I wanted to chat to you about, which was, well, it's the USA. And I know that you recently said in an interview with the Flow Track podcast that when you're on the podium in London, the words of the anthem mattered to you more than ever with the concepts of survival, courage, freedom. For any of our listeners who didn't hear that podcast, I was wondering if you could just elaborate briefly upon why it was the anthem resonated with you so much that day. Yeah, so um, I didn't win, so I wasn't on top of the podium, but I was actually really, really grateful that uh, another American did win so that I could stand there and sing the national anthem because that day um, I was 
I was pretty broken, I would say. I was um, really struggling to perform and to compete and be my usual self in these championships. I was worn down. I, I literally felt broken. But to walk away from that championship with that bronze medal uh, was that meant the world to me. So to be on the podium and to hear the national anthem and to sing the words about land of the free and home of the brave and just the whole story behind the national anthem and being basically in a, well, yeah, literally in a fight for your life and being overwhelmed and not sure you're going to see daylight and you make it to dawn and you see the flag and you're like inspired because you realize you had this strength and that you didn't know you had before. I found all of that inspiring and that's why the anthem that day meant so much to me and why I couldn't control my tears or my emotions or anything that has never happened to me before at one point I was so shocked at my emotional reaction that I was crying harder about crying than crying in the first place it was just a completely new experience for me but one I would not trade for anything in the world I would not trade it for um, a chance to be standing on the top spot with that gold medal that was that meant everything to me and the reason it became so relevant is because of the debate that Americans are having now about what it means to respect or disrespect the flag or the national anthem and my take was that the thing that is powerful about songs that have endured like the national anthem is that uh, they can be interpreted differently by individuals um, from one day to the next, from one decade to the next. And for me on that day, that's what the anthem meant to me. But I by no means um, am going to assume that it means the same thing for someone else. The anthem has endured the test of time because it seems so very universal. Mm -hmm. I feel whilst you wouldn't want to disrespect the anthem, personally I'm very happy disrespecting Donald Trump. This year, and I've, I've not seen any pictures of this from the athletes, were you invited to the White House after the World Champs? No, but our teams usually are not invited after World Championships, just after the Olympic Games. I see. But that was underneath a different and much more revered president. Had you, if you don't mind me asking, had you been invited to the White House by Trump, would you have felt comfortable attending? I would totally attend because I don't need to... I would see that as an opportunity to stand in front of someone that I disagree with and talk to them directly. That's a chance to engage, um, which is honestly something that I would have not done before I found this new inner strength in me this year. Uh, I would have that would have been something I shied away from. But now that I have this, I know that I have this this fighter in me that refuses to back down or wants to stand down or confront or engage or converse with things that maybe I don't agree with or want to better understand. At the end of the day, he's another human being, and I would appreciate the opportunity to get in front of someone like that and have a conversation. Your outspokenness is one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you so very much for this podcast because you are an eloquent and unafraid advocate of well freedom of speech and lots of values which I and a lot of athletic fans and just a lot of human beings hold very dear. 
So it's obviously not always been the case that you've been this outspoken. When was it that you found that strength? <laughs> I didn't find it until I left my home and my marriage, mostly because I spent the previous five years not saying anything or being told not to. And I knew that I had a lot to say, but I had become so used to not speaking or only saying what I knew would be accepted speech. I was still uncomfortable with it uh, for probably a month or two after I left. Uh, interviews were really awkward for me. Blogging was really scary for me. I would literally push the publish button on my on my blog post, slam the computer shut, and like run into my room as if that would make any difference at all. But I was that uncomfortable with the idea of sharing my story for a long time. And but when I look back on my life and I think about one of the things that people in my life who have hurt me have tried to control the most, it's been my voice and how I express myself. And that tells me that that's special and that that's important and something I should fight for. I wanted to talk about your blog actually, which you write beautifully. I was wondering, firstly, as a med student, where that writing ability originates. And also, I was wondering who you write for. Are you writing cathartically for yourself? Are you writing because you enjoy the craft? Are you writing for your readership? What's the purpose of your fantastic blogging? Thank you for the compliment first. Um, it's wonderful, <laughs> it really is. I think the right, so the, I know for a fact that the writing came from the fact that I've been a reader forever. Been reading for a long time, since I was three years old. Been reading early. My mom used to stand me up in front of adults and say, hey, listen to her read, and they would ooh and ah over the fact that this little tiny kid was reading this book. So the more I read, the, the more comfortable I became with language. And um, writing became just, an offshoot of all the reading that I was doing. It helps me, uh, it allows me to be more eloquent because I can draw on a vast vocabulary because I've been exposed to all of these things in reading. The science part, the a lot of people think science and creativity are on two different sides of the spectrum, but for me, uh, what I'm interested in scientifically kind of doesn't have anything to do with my creative expression writing. Uh, this is like how I deal with my personal issues. So in that way, you're correct. It's a cathartic experience. I always, I never, I'm always surprised by the people who say they've read my blog post. So it's not necessarily about the readership because I always assume nobody's really reading it. <laughs> Even though I know that that's not exactly true. I don't, um, I don't consider the reader as much when I'm writing. It's more, it's more about documenting my personal journey and the fact that I know that there is no unique human experience and therefore that blog post is probably going to have universal appeal and so I write it. The structure of the blog post actually came from um, reading a lot of books by one specific author, uh, Rob Bell. I found that his work uh, was just beautifully written. And even though I didn't always agree with the content matter, I liked the way that it, I liked the cadence of the way he presented his arguments or his thoughts. And that's where 
um, how my blog posts sometimes feel like poetry, even though they're not, and that's where that came from. They are. They've got a real <clears throat> a flow and an energy to them, your posts. Oh, it doesn't surprise me that an athlete has written them because they are so pacey and very raw. I get the sense that although they're written perfectly, sometimes they're written in a real outpouring. They're very spontaneous, and then you just hit that publish button because they are so immersive to read, particularly when you're speaking about something about which you're passionate. Quickfire question, which I didn't intend to ask, but having heard that you're such a reader, what's your favourite book? Oh, my goodness. I don't think that I have one. And you can only have one. Oh, okay. Okay, let me think <laughs> about this for a moment. My favourite book. Okay, I will have to go with The Alchemist. Oh, great choice. Um, I would say that's my favourite book because the themes are so relevant to anybody's life, but my life especially, especially now, I think that I read it once a year just kind of to remind me that uh, when I'm on the correct path, this is what's going to happen and, you know, what I can expect. Uh, it's just a beautifully written parable that I think is uh, is poignant for all of us. And going back briefly to your blog, great answer, by the way, um, and the issues that you discuss, a lot of them are very much on the pulse of uh, athletics and popular culture and politics. You're you don't choose pity things to discuss, but I know there are a lot of athletes who have blogs and they just stick to running. You clearly believe that sport and politics, have. there's a very good synthesis possible between those two things. How do you feel about using sport as a vehicle for protest or statement? Well, I think that for me, sport has always been uh, a platform or a means to an end to get to another level. So I say that because when I was in high school, my father said, okay, your mom and I decided we're not going to pay for you to go to college, so figure out how you're going to get there for free. At that moment, I was like, okay, I can get an athletic scholarship and or an academic scholarship. Um, so immediately, since high school, sport has been, sport was my way to get to college. That's how I looked at it. I wasn't... Uh, before that, sport was just fun, and it was like, I'm competitive, and it was a great outlet for me, and, you know, it got me out of the house, and it introduced me to friends I wouldn't otherwise have, but once he said, you can, basically, once it became clear to me that I could use it to get to college, then I started to see sport as a vehicle to get to other places, and so um, I narrowed down to track and field based on the fact that the odds were higher that I'd get a scholarship to college in that sport than any of the other sports that I was participating in at the time. So once I got to college and was competing, I wasn't even thinking about professional track and field. I was just in school thinking I would get a degree in something and then move on to the next thing. But as my older teammates started to sign professional contracts, I, and I saw the amount of money they were making. I began to think, okay, I'm going to college to make the kind of money that they're making as athletes, so I can probably get to the same spot using sport. So again, sport was another vehicle to elevate me to the next level. And then as a professional, um, yes, I am striving for medals and world number one rankings and titles, but at the same time, I want sport to elevate me to 
different levels of things that I would like to do after the sport. Like I'm always thinking about the what's next, not so much that it takes away from my present, but definitely I am a multidimensional person and sport track and field is literally one thing that I do or and or I'm interested in. And so, yeah, I use it because it's the most visible platform that I have, but it's going to help segue me into other areas. So that's why my blog posts cover so many different topics, because I'm trying to show uh, people who I am and that I'm a complicated and complex person. And I think it's important for me to do that because you haven't been able, I haven't been allowed to show you that in so long. And so it's been fun for me to basically reintroduce myself to all of you through my blog posts. I think being multifaceted and showing off those different sides to yourself are incredibly important. And my God, you're such a forward planner. I bet you've done all your Christmas shopping already. So impressed by your long-term planning. What about the athletes who don't get involved and decide to stick to the sport and the sport alone? Is there an obligation for them to use the platform that they have and the reach they have to enter into discourse on social political issues? No, I don't think they have an obligation. I know that there's this well-known quote, to whom much is given, much is required. I think that just because an athlete doesn't wade into the waters of these, like these turbulent waters, by the way, of political and all these social issues, doesn't mean that they aren't using their status as an athlete or a role model in their communities and, and doing any other sort of thing that they would like to do. I don't think there's an obligation to like jump in to this situation, especially if you're not even interested in this. Like you don't have to you don't have to wade into waters that you're uncomfortable wading into. You don't have to lend your voice to an argument that maybe you don't care about just because you have this platform. But I do encourage you to participate in something you do care about or, you know, uh, have a food drive or anything like that that's beyond the scope of your field of play, I would say, yeah, please do take advantage of your platform and give back in that way. I've got a couple of questions here from some of our listeners I'd love to put to you if that's all right. Yes, let's go. I'm excited about these. (laughs) (laughs) So Paul Hunt was wondering, and he's cut straight to the chase here, he says, do you ever wonder that having trained for two events over the course of your career will have compromised the personal best that you will have at the end of it? Oh, yeah, I often wonder that. Um, one really specific time when I thought I wondered about this extra hard and made a few calls about it was 2016 Olympic trials when I had to basically contest the long jump in the 100 at the same time and in such a short period of time have to try to make that long jump team and the 100 meter team. But I ran 1078 in that final and I began to question, had I not jumped at all, would I have run faster than 1078? Like, am I faster than 107? Because I had to jump six times before that. At the same time, I have, um, uh, I'm in great shape and I require a lot of, uh, a huge load in order to 
to basically for my body to respond and my nervous system to respond. So it's also likely that I ran that fast because my legs were primed from the jumping. So it's one of those things where I am literally a dual athlete that cannot choose one event or the other because I have been trained in such a way that me being faster in the 100 increases my ability to jump, my ability to jump far and uh, master, you know, the takeoff and all of those things in the long jump help me get out of the blocks faster. And so maybe we'll never know if I were just a single event athlete, what my personal best would be. But how about we just carve out my own little lane and just <laughs> I'll just continue to try to improve on my personal best being a dual athlete because I think that's where I belong. There's also definitely a case to be made that you've got an overflowing trophy cabinet and that your personal bests are none too shabby to provide the understatement of the podcast and that <laughs> really if you're if what you're after is titles and to be a terrific competitor, which undoubtedly you are, you've ticked those boxes. And if world you know, yes. world records aren't a priority for you, it depends what you want to get out of things. Everyone's going to look back at Mo Farah's career and argue that his personal best weren't all that quick in terms of athletics history but that's irrelevant because he's won more distance medals than any Britain history etc etc so I think it right it depends what matters to you doesn't it exactly yeah whatever your priorities are Pete was wondering and again these listeners haven't held back he was wondering whether or not you've since found peace with the U.S. relay coaches after all of the furore around your inclusion this summer I have come to terms with the situation on my own, but they have not spoken to me at all. So I don't know. Not at all, not a peep. Not at all. I find that absolutely staggering. <laughs> that makes at least two of That's us. That's such a crying shame. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it would have been incredible to watch you in action again, but your, at least your world record remains intact. I feel the same way. Of course, I wanted to run and I was available to run but um, the thing the thing that I am um, upset about I guess that's the word I could use uh, is that is is the being jerked around part because in 2015 when Dennis Mitchell was a relay coach he told me point blank that I was not going to run and I was like cool thank you for telling me I'm going to remove my name from the relay pool, and I'll just go focus on the long jump. But thank you so much for telling me you have basically no plan for me to run this year. And shook hands, and I went on to win a world title in the long jump, and everything was fine, and we're still fine to this day. The difference between that situation and this situation is that it was like, oh, we want you to run. We need your leadership. We want you to come to relay camp. All the way up until the last minute. And it was like, even in London, two days before the relay, the relay coach was saying, you still may have to run. Be ready. So which one is it? It's this, this whole push and pull tug of war game. They were playing with me, now knowing they had zero intention for me to run. I don't operate that way. So just tell me. And I'm an adult. And I have another individual event to focus on. It would have been much more respectful and much more professional to just say, 
hey, look, T, we know you have run great leadoff legs in the past, but we don't need you this time. Great. Thanks for telling me. I will go focus on the long jump. Instead, it was weeks and weeks of, you're amazing. We need your ability. We need your experience only to get down to it. And they stopped speaking to me and stopped making eye contact with me and basically, (laughs) I don't know, just let it be in limbo the entire time until the last minute. And that's what I hated about the situation. It's not that I was replaced or anything like that. It was it was how they did it. And for me, I think I was more sensitive to it because of what I was going through at the time. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's like what I was running away from in a way was being told on one day how valuable I was and then being made to feel like I was worthless in the next moment. That's exactly how I interpreted this relay situation with the coaches. It was like, yeah, you're the greatest, but we don't want you. Like, how do you, how do you reconcile those two things? And I didn't have the ability to continue to do that. And that really broke me down. And I think that was the most upsetting for me. I agree that it was the handling of the whole situation that was the deplorable part of it. And like you said, I think the coaches should have known that you wouldn't have been upset by not being included had it been made clear from the off because you are clearly such a team player. I read, I think it might have been in one of your blogs or perhaps in an interview, that in each major long jump competition, you damage your ankle because you are taking off so very hard and yet you are always prepared to have that strapped up and run a lead leg in a relay Mm -hmm. despite being in pain, despite having your ankle held together with tape. So I think they know that your commitment is there. It was just very, very poorly handled. Something slightly more positive about the 4x1 mm-hmm. is a question from Stephen Pryor, and I love this question, Stephen. He'd like to know if you could go back through history, through time, and pick, hand-pick a 4x100 squad. They don't even have to be American. Anyone in the world from across history, who would you have in your quartet, including yourself? <laughs> I think as cliche and maybe as much of a cop-out as this sounds, I think I would choose my... Rio 4 by one team, again, exactly as it is, because um, I love one that. of the things that makes the 4 by one relay work and makes it wonderful and makes people want to fight for a spot on that team is the camaraderie, and it's one thing to win a gold medal and to take that victory lap by yourself and to celebrate that, but it is an entirely different experience to take that lap with three other women who have been through the rounds with you and to stand on the podium with them and to sing the national anthem with them. I think what we had to go through to get to that final in Rio was an incredible experience. I would not change a minute of that experience, including the thrown baton, because that made it so much sweeter and so much more special in my memory, I think running the way we did from lane one uh, in any other lane probably would have been a new world record. And I will always feel like that's my team because I remember uh, the conversations we had behind the scenes. And I'm not, 
I'm not the kind of person who will declare myself the leader of any group, but I am a natural leader, and it just kind of uh, stepped into the role when it when it presented itself. So I know um, the individual conversations I had with my teammates to motivate them and to like try to get the best out of them and to help them ignore lane one and what that would mean to other people and explain why it didn't mean the same thing to us and how we were still going to kill that relay and leave our mark. <laughs> I um, I don't think I would. That's my team, you know. I think I'll, I would ride with them forever. That's a really special answer. They should play that to anyone wondering whether or not to get into athletics, and I think participation numbers would go through the roof. Oh, thank you. That's absolutely lovely. I've got a really cheesy big smile on my face. I wondered whether or not you'd give me that answer when I saw Stephen's question. I'm absolutely thrilled that you have done. I've got two final questions, if that's all right, if you've got time. Yeah. One that's slightly more profound and one that's a bit silly. Okay. So starting with the serious one. How would you like to be remembered? So if, if I were to mention in 20 years to maybe some kids or something, talking about athletics, and I mentioned you, and I go, oh, you remember Tiana Barcelletta, the one who, how would you like me to end that sentence? Always gave them hell. That's that's what I want people to say about me. Like, it didn't matter if she was in the 100-meter final or the long jump final or if she was in both finals on the same day, 30 minutes apart. She always gave them hell. She never backed down from a competition, whether she was ready or not, whether she felt prepared or not. She was there to compete and to fight. It's a pretty great legacy to leave behind. Yeah. Maybe that's your new Twitter bio. Might be a little intense. <laughs> <laughs> and my last one, because I am, and as an American, you might actually be one of the few people who knows exactly what this is when I say it. I'm a lacrosse player, and I always, always get home from practice, and I have rubber crumb in my sports bra, in my mouth guard, in my hair, in my shoes, everywhere. Mm -hmm. Do you think you will ever, at any point for the rest of your life, manage to be completely sand-free? No. In (laughs) fact, there's probably sand in every drug-testing sample I've ever given. (laughs) (laughs) There is, uh, even in my luggage, that I don't even take with me to meet there is somehow a pile of sand in the bottom. And even if I turn the luggage upright and or over and try to dump it out, I will still reach my destination with a sprinkling of sand across all of my casual clothes. It is just an unending <laughs> battle. I now have uh, like these hardwood floors and I walk across even after mopping or you know wet jetting the heck out of these floors I can walk across the floor a little bit later and feel sand grains of sand on my feet on the bottom of my feet so it's like I never I never get rid of it never (laughs) well there we have it (laughs) Tiana Vartalata multiple world medalist world record holder fantastic blogger political social advocate and sand covered being (laughs) thank you ever so much for speaking to me today thank you so much for having me it was a great time hi this is jenny simpson and back straight back all right (laughs) is that all right
Thank you so much to Tiana for um, taking the time to have an interview with Claire. And thanks for everyone who sent their, their questions in. Um, just really interesting to hear from an athlete who's obviously achieved so much. Yeah. Um, and yet it was my question, like, what has she been doing between 2005 and 2012? <laughs> and she said, what, what was it, practicing mediocrity or something? Yes, yes. And in her head, she was never going to be a world champion again or Olympic champion. She was literally just going to do some sport to make a bit of money to put herself through med school. So interesting. And, it's, and to have, still have that, um, the fire and the passion and the commitment to doing well, the sport. talent as well, because like, yeah. you, know, you could have just become a journeyman. You could have just kept going and, you know, just got the money at the idea of the, um, the, the Grand Prix and that just to, to, as you say, put yourself through med school. But it turned out she was actually, a, it was still in there, wasn't it? it was, she, was, she was still able to, to pull it out when it, when it finally mattered. I think it's interesting. It says a lot about your, um, what goes on in people's heads, doesn't it? I mean, it's almost like mm. mental rather than physical where she decided it wasn't happening and then it all came back together again. Um, I also there's so many athletes, all, sorry, quickly, there's so many athletes who we do think what happened to them yeah. and maybe it's the same thing. Maybe they, it's so tough, like with injuries and just yes, exactly. the commitment, being up at five in the morning and actually having to do exercise. Also, I, just, I don't know it was a week. Just the pure funding side of it, you know, it's like you you don't know from year to year, month to month, exactly what your your money's going to be. Your your sponsor get gets cut, so the less the less some success you have, the less money you have, and then the less chance you have to actually come back because you probably can't afford to do so, can you? So, um, well, you know, athletes we've lost through those reasons, and yeah. who haven't has maybe maybe haven't had as much talent, but um, as also as much commitment to come back. So, we're very glad that she did. Yes, we are. Um, also, I, <laughs> what would you change about the sport? And she immediately says the, um, the um, Diamond <laughs> League. Um, yeah, it was just maybe lol, because like, I think it's like everyone's answer, isn't it? I mean, I suspect, I mean, well, maybe we'll have to wait and see, but I suspect come next year they will have come up with some solutions, whether they're um, actually good solutions or not, we'll have to wait and see. But we'll leave that to you, Sarah. Yeah. yeah. And one other takeaway from that conversation was um, how I love to see athletes who have other stuff going on. Like, she's yes. super smart, super yeah. organized. Like, the fact that she's going to be a med student, and I don't know what she's going to go on to do after athletics, but to even have the um, capability of being a med student or being a doctor is just out of this world. So, I it love is, to see you, you get a lot of stuff. Yeah, you get a lot of athletes who sort of make the sport their world, and then yeah. when it ends, they don't know what to do with themselves. But she definitely seems like she's got a plan, although she's on such a high at the moment in the sport that hopefully she'll be around for a good few years yet. Also, think about the mentality of that. When you have other stuff going on, I mean, obviously she's had issues going on outside of sport that, that we did touch on, but yeah. just to have other interests that put sport into context. Into context. Okay. When, when she is, like she said, is her last jump, she knows it's not the only thing in the whole world, so she can be relaxed, and that's when you perform at your best. And lots of athletes are so like wound up by the sport and like achieving this, that actually it's to their detriment. So sometimes it's good to take a step back, relax a little bit, and just treat it as, obviously treat it very seriously, but with as a bit of fun and really um, be able to perform at your best when you need to, rather than being like tied up with nerves or everything else. Yeah, it's also good to see an athlete with opinions. So many people, and this isn't just this just isn't just in sport. You know, this is just in life. So many people like don't like to put their head above the parapet, don't like to say anything, don't like to draw attention to themselves, don't maybe are unsure of their opinions. And she was right. You know, when she said about yeah. Claire asked about um, whether people should like take a stand or something on on issues. No, you you don't, shouldn't have to unless unless you have a um a very specific um opinion on something, then don't you know don't um just give it for the sake of it. But um. 
she clearly does, as you say, she's super intelligent and it's really good to hear, you know, whatever opinions may be, I do like people who have, you know, have strong opinions and are willing to voice them. Absolutely, and we're very glad that she came on the Backstreet Boys to share them with us. Thank you for listening, and remember to follow us on Twitter, that's Claire underscore G Thomas, Backstreet B for Jody and Bayo, and Matt Woodywood for myself. If you can, review and rate us on the iTunes store, and we'll be back very, very soon with our usual offering. Mm-hmm.